Hello, welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and Matt Tracy, the one and only (laughs) Professor, Professor Matt Tracy. Uh, we have a guest with us today. We've we've been mixing it up a couple uh, a couple of past episodes. You've just had Matt and I uh, riffing on some theological topics. Uh, today we have uh, someone uh, who's actually related to me. Uh, we have my uncle uh, Mike Michael Cottrell with us uh, today. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thank you. Um, we're going to talk a, a little bit about uh, Mike was a pastor for a long time, so we're just going to kind of talk about. Uh, he, he has, he's in the stage of life where he's kind of, uh, in that sage stage where he has some sage like wisdom and experience that he can offer. So, uh, we're just going to talk a little bit about, uh, the insights he gained from years in ministry and, uh, perhaps some things he's seeing happening in the church, uh, today and, uh, sort of his take and on that, and, uh, a little bit about his passion about the context of scripture. But before we do that, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to, to tell us a little bit about themselves, to, to share a little bit of their story and um, their testimony, perhaps. So, uh, Mike, uh, who is Mike in a nutshell? What's, what's kind of the synopsis of your story and um, how you came to be a follower of Jesus and how you came to be where you are today? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, got great parents and uh Went to church most of my uh, youth age, except while my parents weren't necessarily legalistic, <clears throat> the church we attended was. And my parents were the kind of Christians. They were young, obviously. Uh, and uh, growing, going to church there, they, uh, they just kind of believed whatever they was taught. And so uh, there was a huge lifestyle change for them. I was like three or four years old, so I didn't, I don't recognize the life change, but what I do recognize as I grew older, we couldn't go to movies. Uh, you know, you couldn't, you're not supposed to play cards. Uh, now we weren't, we weren't real conservative because we did have television, uh, <laughs> but uh, couldn't dance all these rules. And, and as I started getting older and got into junior high and high school, I started questioning some of these issues and the church just didn't have an answer. They just, in fact, they just said, Mike, you're just being rebellious. Mm. And eventually, that's what I did. I, I just got tired of the rules. I was my uh, junior year in high school. I was going to go to our prom and some of the church uh, leaders, I, I, I suppose, spoke to my parents and said, you know, I really should let him go to that. Well, they did. And after that, I said, I'm done. You know, if, if, if this is the way God is, I'm done. I'm out of here. And I left the church and uh, pretty much rebelled. I, for about eight years, got into a crazy season of life and got myself into some trouble. And eventually at age 23, slowly kind of came back into the church fearfully because uh, I didn't know what I was coming back into. All I, all I knew is what I experienced. Uh, and I didn't think God was really that way, but yet I didn't know anything else because I hadn't been taught anything else. Uh, fortunately for me, I, was, uh, I got into a healthier church when I came back as an adult. And it took me a while, but I slowly began to uh, fall in love with this concept of Christ and what Christ had done for us and the, and the church and became a believer and became a follower and ended up going to college, pastored for 35 years. And here I am today talking to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was a good uh, 
that was a good nutshell synopsis. I have a couple, uh, I want to probe a little bit before we go on to the next question. Um, what's funny though, is talking about the lifestyle change. So this would be my grandma and grandpa, uh, his parents. And, um, you know, I knew them as grandma and grandpa and my grandpa was a, a pastor when I was young. And recently I sat down and had story time with my grandpa, well, grandma and grandpa. And I realized, uh, uh, they, they were, uh, they were a little wild when they were young. Uh, they, they drag raced <laughs> cars in, uh, was it St. Louis and stuff. And, um, before they became believers. And so, uh, so part of that context that I think Mike is explaining or describing is, uh, they had a very profound encounter with, with Jesus and, and came to be followers of Jesus. Um, but they also were, uh, I guess, trying to do it right. And for them to do it right was to sort of, like you said, just follow the instruction and guidance of their pastor, which, uh, it, and also I think the history is, is a factor. There was a, it wasn't uncommon from my perspective in the past for that sort of legalism to be, uh, pretty, pretty normal for a church. Would you, would you agree, Mike, that that was just part of also the the time, like just part of the times, I guess, was that was pretty common for Christians to have those sort of uh, rigidly defined do's and don'ts. Yeah. And I think even more so when you're in a small church and they were in a small church, they were in yeah. a church of, of about 75, 80 people. And yeah. So that tends to be more so it's not always the case, but it wasn't in this case. And they had a tragic, my mother had a, a sister that was killed just prior to them coming. So they had a tragedy in their life. And I think through that tragedy, they had some relatives that started talking to them about Christ. And it was just a season for them. They thought, you know, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us maybe to take uh, stock in our, our own life, our relationship with God. So they became believers and yeah, they were all in, they jumped all in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I credit them for that. And, and I don't blame them for the legalism. They were, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm grateful now the upbringing I had that strict upbringing. Um, but it, it was a yoke around my neck as a young man for many years, even in the ministry at first. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we'll probably get into that. So, um, one, one other question. So you talked about, you had, uh, I think you said about an eight year period of kind of living in that rebellion. Um, but then you came back to the church. Uh, was there, was there a catalyst or, uh, uh, a decision moment or something that happened in your life that um, inspired that, like, I don't know, I'm going to step back and I'm going to step foot in the church again. <laughs> um, how did that yeah. come about? I was, uh, I was in a place in Plainfield, Indiana. It was called Bobby Helms club. It's a, it was a little bar. And I, I went there two or three nights a week. So I was sitting in there with my friends as I normally did about 1230 at night. And, uh, they're all dancing. I'm sitting at the table by myself. I'm just kind of looking, scanning the room. And I look up towards the bar area and I see 10 or 12 uh, gentlemen, probably in their 40s, 50s, maybe some in their 60s. And I'm looking at, at these guys here. I'm, I'm 22, you know, and I'm looking at these 40, 50, 60 year olds thinking, wow, it's nothing but a bunch of bums in here. And at that moment, something said to me, What's that make you? And for the first time in my life, I thought, 
I'm a bum. I'm a bum. And for some reason, it had a it had an overwhelming uh, emotion to me. And so I I said to my friends, "Hey, I'm going home." Uh, okay, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, uh, maybe. And I left, and that was the last time I was in a bar. But that was the beginning, and I began to begin to really something began to steer inside of me. Where am I going with my life? What am I doing? I'm just wasting my life here. And uh, I had a friend. Uh, his name is Michael Starnes, who was very involved in the church. And at the same time, this happened on a Thursday night. And that following week, Michael calls me and he was the youth pastor at the church. And he worked, he was Bible case. He worked at uh, uh, Detroit Allison's Chevrolet. He got put on, he got put on night shift. So they're getting ready for a Christmas program they're going to do. And Michael was in charge of that. Well, he's gone. He's now got to go to work. So he calls me and says, Hey, can you help me out? I said, help you do what? We got this program that the youth are doing, and you, you've got some experience in this. I need some help. Will you just show up on Wednesday nights and kind of lead them through it? And I agreed. And so I started doing that on Wednesday nights, and I did that for a couple of weeks. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I at least should go to church. <laughs> <laughs> I started going to church, and uh, about two months later, I said, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to try this again. I, I remember my life when I – when I was trying to follow Christ as a young kid, I remember, you know, I was a, I was a nice person. I was a likable person. I'm not a likable person anymore. So I thought I want to go back to that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, me and Anthony, I mean, both former youth pastors, that is baptism by fire. Just like, yeah. <laughs> Hey, yes. Why don't you, why don't you just come and come on Wednesday nights and help us with our, our program? <laughs> Did you go to, did you go to school for ministry or was that just something that kind of came about? Um, I, uh, well, I did at that for that. I went to uh, uh, a couple of years after I gave my life to Christ. I went to uh, what was previously known as Gulf Coast Bible College. Today it's called uh, Mid-America University in Oklahoma City. Very cool. So um, we, we kind of got into this, but kind of want to flush it out a little bit more. Uh, could, could you explain your understanding of, of what it means to be called into ministry and maybe even like uh, differentiate between what that means as far as like a pastoral vocation and also the, the ministry that we're all called to do, you know, we're all called to make disciples. Everyone is quote unquote called to ministry. So how do you kind of differentiate that in your mind? How do you understand your sense of calling? It's a very good question. Uh, for me, I think we have been called to be disciples of Christ, which you just mentioned. That's our calling. Now, what we do as followers varies. I do believe that God has equipped and gifted and put in the heart of some people, men and women, to take on that role of a pastor. I don't think the role of a pastor is their calling. I think their calling is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Their title or their job as a pastor is their vocation. That's what they do for a living. That's how they serve the body of Christ in that capacity. Uh, as I said, I do think it takes a special person to do that. I don't think that, I don't think that everyone that's been called to follow Christ has also been called to be a pastor. But I find sometimes that we, you know, 
just like a, I think a truck driver is called to be a truck driver and a nurse is called to be a nurse and, and a teacher is being called to be a teacher. And in my experience, as I've come to know people, there's people, they got passion in them. I know teachers that they just got a passion to teach. I know people that have to go to nursing school because they just got a passion to be a nurse. Well, I think that's the same passion mm-hmm. runs in people who become ministers. But some, some, for some reason, we distinguish, we, we separate a call to be a minister and maybe a call to be a nurse or a call to be a truck driver. And in doing so, I think sometimes we set pastors up on a false platform and we almost make give them this God complex. Like mm-hmm. they've got superpowers and you know they're supposed to be the all in, all in in the church. And, and that's unfair. It's unfair to the pastor. It's unfair to the church. It's unfair to the kingdom of God. So I yeah. think pastors need to keep a, a balance between I'm called to follow Christ. I choose as following him to be a pastor. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. And, you know, as as we kind of see these more famous pastors start to like their, you know, the skeletons start to come out of their closet, like uh, I, I try to I tend to think, you know, when these things happen, um, how how much have they isolated themselves because of that distinction? Like they they feel this pressure to be this like superhero for Jesus, and people hold them in such high regard, and that kind of strips their ability to be vulnerable, and um, that tends to I feel like be very isolating for them. And here's a here's a, a little illustration of what we're talking about. When I uh, left the ministry a couple of years ago, I had some some friends that asked me and then they was they had they were well intended but they were concerned for me like what are you going to do now uh Mm -hmm. where are you going to go what church are you going to pastor and when i told them i'm not going to pursue another pastorate they were like well wait a minute you got a pastor if you don't pastor they'll be almost insinuating i'll be backsliding Mm -hmm. and i thought no i I won't be backsliding i i my who i am as a christ follower is not going to change my role as a Christ follower is not going to change. I'm still going to have a pulpit. It's just not going to be inside the church. Mm-hmm. My pulpit will now be on a job site in, in, hard, in hard hat and boots, talking to guys on the, on the field, are, are making phone calls with people. I, I can still serve the body of Christ and not be called a pastor of a local church. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that they had their, I think their, their thoughts, their thinking I think reflects a lot of people's thinking that we, when a pastor has been called, that's all they can do. If they do anything else, they're backsliding. And mm-hmm. I, and I think that's not true. And I think you make a good point there, Matt, that I feel bad for some of these pastors who are at a, at a certain, at a level of influence that they already know. And they carry this weight. If I, if, if I fail, it's going to hurt a lot of people. And so in their vulnerability, they hide it. They, like you said, they retreat, they, 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 become, they become closed off and eventually it, it overcomes them, at least some of them. And it's, it's just unfortunate. Yeah. They, yeah. they think like, and when I fail, it's going to hurt a lot of people. So when they inevitably fail, they hide it to avoid hurting a lot yes. of people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's actually so many uh, layers of sort of um, theological truths we can unpack just in this conversation, because what I feel one of the, the, one of the um, paradigms that results from some of this thinking of calling to ministry and then just like, you know, 
the job in the marketplace is a divide between the sacred and secular. This idea that there's um, there's these ministry, kingdom, Christian jobs, and then there's just my my nine to five or my factory job, and there's nothing redemptive about that, or there's no way to integrate my spiritual self into that. And so we have this like sacred secular divide. I think another, but what I love about what you said is we're all called to be disciples. Um, but then how we live that out uh, can look different. And I also heard that following Jesus, Jesus can redeem our passions. Like you talk about people being passion, passionate for nursing or passionate for teaching. Um, it's almost like uh, when you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you uh, sometimes do a lot of things that you wouldn't have normally done. It's like you do them with a new mindset or a new lens. So you're a teacher and you're following Jesus. It doesn't mean you need to not be a teacher and go be a missionary somewhere necessarily. Um, It means when you walk into that school, you have a lens, uh, a different lens through which you're seeing people and through which you're seeing uh, your environment and opportunities and, um, and all this stuff. And uh, I think it's really important. Like Jesus can redeem your passions. Dallas Willard, this is a paraphrase of a quote he said, but um, that we're not necessarily called to do what Jesus did uh, in the sense of what he actually in person did over 2000 years ago. We're called to do what we do in the manner that he did what he did. Like uh, we're, we're called to live our lives in the way that Jesus would live them. Yeah. I think Whatever that's, uh, yeah, I think that's really important. The other thing I thought, around this conversation and the, the, um, the kind of the moral slip-ups with pastor is what can happen. And I want to mention too, this can happen with missionaries. I know missionaries sometimes too, they come home from the field and it feels like there's this like um, cloud of failure that surrounds people that leave a particular um, ministry field, whether it's missions or the pastorate. Um, and that's not always the case. Like sometimes there's a season, um, but what happens is our identities, and I'm speaking this as a pastor for myself, our identities can be so closely tied to that role of pastor that when it's not there, it's like, well, if I'm not a pastor, like, who am I? If this isn't my role, what is my purpose? And um, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of conversations, but what I did want to, before we go into the next question I wanted to ask, I did want to ask, so um, you distinguish between the disciple and the vocational role um, but you were a pastor for how many years? 35 uh, years. 35. What was your, how was that passion awakened or how did you get into that role and, and uh, that season of living out your discipleship as a pastor? What was that? Uh, what was your, after our conversation, I hesitate to say your calling, <laughs> what was your call experience, but what was the, um, how did that come about? Okay. Yeah. Let me back up and just say, maybe I should say this. I, I would say that, that the calling of ministry is no different than the calling to be a nurse or a calling to be a truck driver. I, I like to, I never, I never attached my identity to my title as a pastor, which I think is why I was able to transition the last two years. So, so easily and so smoothly as I, I'm, I'm a Christ follower, number one, and I'm, I'm, I'm not my, my role or my, my vocation doesn't define me. It just, it's just a way that I provide a living for my family. And some people don't like to hear that. 
but that was good for me. And that's how I, I viewed it. Uh, you know, I, again, I got a story. Uh, I got all, all I have is stories. When I did come back to the church, uh, something I left out on my uh, previous story, when I was in third grade, uh, well, actually, when I was in second grade, I got abused and started stuttering. And uh, back then, they didn't take kids to counseling and stuff like they do today. So I had a stuttering problem. And in third grade, I was in a reading circle with uh, the teachers, and they having each student read. So come my turn to read. I said, I don't want to read. And the teacher said, Mike, go ahead, read. It's okay. So I started reading, started stuttering. The kids started laughing. Uh, so I looked at her, said, okay, I've been embarrassed enough. You see why I don't want to read. Can you go on? Well, being the studious teacher she was, she wanted to make sure that I continued to read. She wanted to help me get through this. And uh, so she said, no, Mike, keep reading. So I kept reading. And uh, I started stuttering real bad again. And uh, I, would, I would always stutter when I was in a situation where I was uncomfortable. I started stuttering real bad. And even began to mispronounce the words and the kids started laughing. I looked at the teacher and she was laughing as well. Hmm. And I was just devastated. And of course, at that point, she didn't make me read any further, but I ran home. I remember running home that night and uh, after school and went in my bedroom, I was crying like a nine year old kid would do and, and just said, God, why am I different? Why am I different? Why are people laughing at me? And, and uh, I made a decision through that a whole feel sorry for me process People are not going to laugh at me anymore. I'm not going to. So, so I made some decisions. First of all, I'm never reading again, ever. <laughs> I didn't. From third grade to 12th grade, I never read again. Uh, I, uh, I wouldn't read. Um, and if anyone started making fun of me in any way, or if I thought they were making fun of me, I, I would get start fighting. And so I was constantly getting in trouble in school. So now that backstory, let's fast forward. I'm now 23. I'm a Christ follower. And I have a little place that I would go to and spend my devotion time. I'm reading God's word, studying. I've been following Christ for about eight, nine months now, and just growing leaps and bounds and just having a great life. And while I'm in my devotion there, praying and studying, I, I sense God speaking to me like he did at uh, Bobby Helms Club. And I had this idea just come across me. I want you to go prepare to be a pastor. It was so real to me that I got immediately, I got angry. And I I know, I remember holding my Bible, I threw my Bible, I was out in the woods, I threw my Bible across the woods and I jumped up. I said, no, God, you cannot ask me to do that. There's no way you can ask me, do you know what's going to happen? Pastors have to read, pastors have to speak in front of people. I don't do those things because last time I did it, I was embarrassed. And uh, so I began this wrestling with God and finally I sensed again, God said, Mike, trust me, trust me, they won't laugh. And I had this just, uh, I mean, I don't know how long it was. It was probably 30, 40 minutes, an hour. But at some point I said, okay, God, I, I, I said, when I came back to you, I'd give you everything. I'd do everything you tell me to do. I don't understand this. I don't know why you'd ever want me to pastor, but okay, I surrender. And immediately when I said that, all that anger and that hurt that was inside of me left. I felt peace. Wow. I thought, wow. So I remember coming out of the woods, and Anthony, you can, re you can relate to this. I remember coming out of the woods and going to your grandparents, and my, my dad was at work, my mom was there, and I said, uh, 
then God wants me to go into ministry. And uh, so she was a little elated. They all kind of sensed it happening, uh, but they didn't say anything. They didn't want to influence me. And uh, <clears throat> so I said to her, I said, <clears throat> excuse me. So I needed to go to school. I don't know where to go to school. And uh, she said, well, why don't you uh, call Ray Moore? Ray Moore was their former pastor. And he had went to Gulf Coast Bible College. She said, he could probably give you some advice. So I called Ray Moore. He was in Illinois at the time and uh, asked him about Gulf Coast and asked him about Anderson. And he said, well, Mike, I could tell you a lot of things, but I got something better if you're available. The representative of Gulf Coast is going to be at our church tonight. So if you're able to be here tonight, you can talk to them first, firsthand. And I said, you know what? I'll be there. He was an hour and a half away. So I jumped in my car and drove an hour and a half, met with them, registered, went to college. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, um, that, stories. That, that's my calling. I mean, I just feel like, okay. Uh, now, uh, was that a, I got to believe it was a spirit move. Uh <clears throat> In my world today, you, you got to be careful talking to people about spirit moves. They think you're weird. <laughs> uh, but I know you guys get it. Yeah. 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 There's no. many stories. I, uh, I was just thinking like, you know, when you were younger going to church, they said, you know, you're just being a rebel. And so you just leaned into that. Uh, you got made fun of by your teacher. And so you just kind of leaned into that. And like all these different ways that I think the enemy just tries to like, feed us lies that we believe that can really affect our sense of calling and our worthiness to be called by God. Um, and uh, just the way that you uh, were, were willing to just say, okay, yes. And that, and immediately God just kind of gave you a sense of peace and, and redeemed all of that. I, I think there's a, there's a real power to the, the lies that we believe about ourselves and how that really shapes our identity growing up. And so I appreciate those stories. You tell them those stories because it's a really good illustration of just like the ways that I think Satan can, can try to throw us off course. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. I know he does. Um, we, we've not gotten very far. I have one more. Uh, I have a question I'm going to ask, but before that, just, I think it'd be beneficial for our viewers because um, Mike, did you hear an audible voice? Did the heavens open? Uh, was there a beam of light? Did you know, a dove descend, uh, or was it donkey, donkey talk, a donkey talk to you, or was it through, uh, through your kind of what I'd say your thought stream, but it was distinct enough from your thoughts that you're like, Oh, this is, this is not just my, my idea. Yeah, no, it was, it was just a thought. Uh, it was one of those, it was how I explain it. It was a thought that just comes out of, came to me. That's like, that's not a normal thought for me to have. And it, yeah. it was, it was like, like, it was, it was almost like paralyzing. It was a thought that just grabs, you know, we have thoughts all the time and mm -hmm. some we become aware of and some we don't, but this thought was like, wow, it grabbed mm -hmm. my attention. So yeah, yeah. it was a thought. The, re the reason I bring that up is I just want to encourage if you're listening and you hear stories about people feeling like they hear from God, I've been in a place where I've, I've elevated that uh, or, or I felt like, well, they must've, I've just had all these, uh, ideas about what that meant. But I think a lot of times when you actually dive into it, uh, the spirit often speaks through our thought stream. Um, but it's, it's like you said, it's a, a thought we normally wouldn't have, or I found sometimes it's a persistent thought. So I just want to encourage you, if you have um, a thought that you normally wouldn't have, 
um, that is in alignment with, with the way of Jesus in alignment with what you understand about scripture, um, or it's a persistent thought, maybe lean into that. Um, I've been trying to act on those thoughts more consistently when it seems like, uh, like they're there. Um, cause it might just be the spirit speaking to you, but, um, anyways, uh, episode. yeah, it would be, uh, how does <laughs> God speak? Down. Actually, it would be, we should talk write, about that. Write that down. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> uh, so Mike, you were a pastor, as you said, 35 years. Um, what are some of the things you know now, uh, after those years of experience that, that perhaps you wish you would have known, uh, earlier in ministry. And, um, my hope for asking this question is you might have some encouraging things for either young pastors, uh, perhaps like myself, (laughs) um, or even young Christians, like what things do you know now also as a Jesus follower that you wish you would have known earlier in ministry? Here's the big one. Relax. It'll be okay. (laughs) Just relax. You know, there's so much pressure on pastors and a lot of it was probably put on themselves by themselves, but they, they put so much pressure to, to be good at, at preaching and be a good leader and be a, be a good relational guy with her. I mean, there's just so many things that pastors have to do. And there's, and I, if I was a guy who was always, always stressing myself out. It's like, relax, it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, don't depend on you. I know yeah. we sometimes we don't, we know it doesn't, I think sometimes we act like it does. And I know there's that saying, act like it all depends on Jesus, but work like it all depends on you. And that's a nice little saying, but the bottom line is relax, guys. Second thing, I'd say, I got a couple little one-liners. Don't take it personal. I know sometimes people will make it personal because they'll come to us and they'll attack us. Uh, they'll attack your preaching or attack something you said. Don't take it personal. Uh, and and then, then I would say this, and this is... A, Probably the biggest lesson that I learned later. Don't surrender your attitude to other people. Don't let other people's attitude determine your attitude. You control yours. You own it. And so I and I even use that today. I don't let other people dictate my attitude. I own my attitude and I'm not going to surrender my attitude to them because that gives them control over me. I don't want to do that. So those are the those are some intense. Here's some practical stuff. Take a day or two off every week. I know, I know, I know. It's, well, I'm just going to run the office for a couple hours on your day off. No, don't. Stay out of the office. Stay out of the church. Get away. Uh, Take that one, one and a half, two days a week off. Uh, Find what allows you to get your mind off of stuff. You know, if I was at home, I was always thinking about something. But if I could get out of town, even for two or three days, getting out of town after about a day, I relaxed and I got my mind off stuff. So I would say take three or four times a year, get out of town, get away. And if you're a preaching pastor, get out of the pulpit eight to 12 weeks a year. Get out of the pulpit, get other people to preach for you. You don't have to be the sole voice on, and you need that time uh to you know in fact i always and later in ministry i took the month of july off every year um and so i took four weeks in a row and i didn't go i mean i wasn't necessarily out of out of the office i wasn't out of the out of work i just didn't preach and i used that uh four weeks in july to plan my upcoming series and to just just be able to research and do some things 
that sometimes get pushed back because we got to preach. Sunday's coming. It's always coming. It's always coming. And uh, so, yeah, just being able to take that time away and break away. And it's okay. You're, in fact, I would tell you, pastors who preach, your congregation will appreciate you bringing in other voices, especially if they're decent speakers or good, good speakers, because it gives them a break from you. And I know you're the greatest preacher in the world, but it gives them a break because they hear you all the time. And, uh, and it gives you a break. And, it, and I think it helps for a long tenure, too. So mm-hmm. that's what I would tell pastors. Relax. Take the time off. Yeah. Did you ever feel pressure as a pastor from your congregation, like when you took time off? Because uh, a lot of time congregations, like they, they don't have a full understanding of what, what goes into your week to week. So did you ever feel pressure from your congregation to like, constantly be on on call uh, constantly be working feel did you ever feel guilty about taking that time away i i, I didn't at my church that i pastored in michigan but at the the form the church i just have left from uh there was some my, my first year there i took three weeks off in july and the board said we would prefer you never to take more than two weeks off at a time and uh, so, yeah, there was some pressure there. So we we had to work through that. It, it for the next two or three years, I, I just I'd done what they asked. But then after I was there, got some more time there. I was there four or five years. I began to explain to them why I felt like it was necessary and beneficial for me to take that time off. And they've uh, they were more open to it at that point, and they uh, agreed. But at first, yes, there was some pressure. Like, hey, no, you can't be off. You get paid. You got to be in the office. You got to be preaching. Yeah. I just, uh, being in my first lead role, I just want to affirm that, um, uh, it's, it's important. And the, I think the, I could be wrong, Mike, you could, you could speak to this. Um, but I feel like the expectation of the quality of messages you have to bring to the table, uh, has went up a little bit because now podcasts and YouTube and live stream and, all this stuff, like you can have access to some of the um, most influential names from around the world too, not just in the U S like some of the most influential preachers in the world, you can hop on your podcast and listen to them. Um, And then the other thing I I'm aware of is you can be fact checked, like right there in the pew uh, (laughs) with someone hopping on Google. And so um, uh, I I put a lot, I try to put a lot of uh, time in the study and research. Um, but then you're, you're cranking out weekly, um, quite a bit of content. And so Matt's actually my kind of, he's been my go-to guest speaker since I'm, uh, I don't have like a preaching team on my staff and that's really life-giving. Um, but I don't know, Mike, do you feel like that's fair to say, uh, that, yeah, you know, it, yes. the, the, the expectation has, you, you have to bring your, your game a little bit to preaching, uh, perhaps I don't want to say more than your, I, I just, the landscape's different. Uh, the, the last 20 to 25 years, last 20 and especially the last five. Uh, absolutely. When, when you've got the, I mean, anybody can turn Greg Rochelle on, they can turn Mark Batterson on, uh, you know, they can get Steve in South Carolina. They, they can get all these great preachers that, uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, you're competing with them. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are. Yeah. And after COVID, especially because the landscape has changed, I think, and uh, since since COVID, now, it might get back to the way it was. But I I think we're going to find a much larger population 
of online churchgoers now than we ever did before. Yeah. And I don't think that's going away. And they're going to, they're going to church hop because they can do it from their living room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are your, tell some of your favorite, you, you like telling stories. We, we like hearing stories. So uh, what are some of your favorite stories that you've uh, gotten to be a part of as a pastor? Some of the ways that you've seen God work in your congregations or in your personal life. The, uh, I'll tell a story again. Uh, when I went to my first full-time senior pastors in Michigan, little church in Millington, Michigan, a uh, congregation of about 40 people. And they just went through a church split hmm. prior to me getting there. And uh, they'd gotten to a point where they were about to lose the church. They, I think they had at that time, they had like twelve, thirteen hundred dollars $1,300 of, uh, of expenses going out and they was taking in a, a month and they were taking in about $1,800 a month. So they had a, an excess of about five, $600 a month. And this is during a time they didn't, they didn't have a pastor. So where are they going to pay a pastor? $100 a week. Uh, so there was a little church. They were, they were just, they, they were about to die. And there was about core of about 20, 25 people. They came together one night and said, we're not going to lose this church. We're not going to lose this church because of all the sacrifice and the devotion other people before us have put in. So they got committed to start that church. So I come on scene after that. I uh, immediately after arriving there, I uh, started a prayer ministry and I asked for men that would sign up to be prayer partners with me. And there were eight men that signed up, which I thought was pretty good uh, in the size of the, of the congregation. So these eight men began to be prayer partners. I gave each one of them a day a week that they were to pray. We met once a month for me to disciple them and just to pray with them. And then they would show up every Sunday, an hour before service, and pray with me for that service. That started in a 10-year period of that prayer partner ministry. In 10 years, it went from eight men to 94 people. Our church grew from 40 to 470 uh, we, uh, bought 20 acres of land and, uh, built a brand new church building. But one of my favorite stories was that first year I was there, these prayer partners, they were praying and they were devoted and they were doing, I mean, I could just feel when we'd get together and they would pray with me. I mean, that's Sunday on Sundays. It was powerful. We had a $30,000 debt that we wanted, that I wanted to get paid off in a year in a church that didn't have any money. So we made that a goal and I did campaigns and I made these little uh, thermostats that you could raise the money up. So we, we, we go on this big push and a year to the date, we're $8,000 and some change short. So I tell the congregation, you know, we're, this is our Sunday. We want to be debt free by the day. We're 8,000 and some odd change short. Uh, we're going to take a special offering this morning and we're going to have the guys count the offering before we even leave. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna meet this goal. And uh, they took the offering and the uh, they went and counted it. Came up as the service closed. Give me the number, and we were twenty three hundred dollars short of our goal. And one of the prayer partners there stood up and he said. My wife and I have been saving for three and a half years to buy new windows for our house. 
I'm going to give that money to pay off the debt. And he wrote a $2,300 check and we met our goal wow. that year. Wow. I contribute all of that to those men who prayed. I think their prayers caused them to get more committed to the church, caused them to be more committed to me. And there was a, there was a unity in that little small congregation that was just powerful. And uh, I'll never forget ever, ever in my life, the sacrifice that family made to get us debt free and to wait another three and a half years to get windows for their house. That was, that was a God year for us. Yeah. That's really cool. How, uh, how long were you in Millington again? I was 13 years. Wow. Wow. Um, And just a, a little kind of small world thing. So uh, there's, I'm in the church of God now, uh, which is a church of God, Anderson. It's important to note that um, (laughs) because there's some other church of gods that are a little different theologically, uh, which no, no judgment there, just noting it. (laughs) Um, And uh, a town near where I was at in Warsaw, there was a youth pastor at a bigger church uh, North Webster and uh, found out recently that the youth pastor is taking on uh, the lead role at Millington uh, here soon. Um, yeah, Perry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Aaron? Uh, yeah, Aaron no, uh, uh, JJ, his brother. JJ, that's right. Aaron's at Kokomo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it's just kind of, it's like, I heard that. I was like, oh my goodness, that was a church my uncle was at. Uh, couple years ago. Now there's only been one pastor between since you and JJ, right? Or has there been Correct. a couple? Yeah. Okay. Yes, just one. Yeah. So um, yeah. And it, as far as I can tell, it's thriving and there's that building. I remember uh, as a kid visiting you guys and uh, when your phase one of that building project was complete, because you were in a high school for a while too, before you built that building. Yeah. We were um, in a high school for almost four years. Ah, that's a long time to be portable. Um, I've, I've read a lot of books that have like a very similar, you know, pastors telling a very similar story to that, where it just takes a, a core. It doesn't even have to be a big group of people just like committed to faithfully praying. Uh, that's amazing. There's a church here in town. Uh, they're in a very, very similar. It sounds exactly like the situation you're, you're found, found yourselves in when you started there. And I, w- I wish they could hear that story. Yeah, share this uh, share this episode with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was thinking about them the whole time. It, I, I, they need to hear that. They need to hear that because um, a lot of the time we just like write these churches off. Like, oh yeah, you've been there a hundred years. Just find another church. You can just let it go. Um, right. But but that's not that's that's not. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, as no. you were saying, uh, as you were talking about that, Matt, it just reminded me of another. Uh, movement that started with a small group of people praying in a room. Uh, I think there's a story in scripture about that, that exploded in growth. <laughs> but um, you mean God can use those? It's yeah. So-, <laughs> um, so Mike, now you've kind of transitioned out of like what we call vocational ministry, but you're still following Jesus. And um, I think it's fair to say you still have something of a pastor's heart uh, and, and, um, I don't, I guess I don't know exactly how I define that, but just sort of a pastoral concern, pastoral care for other people. And so, but now kind of where you've turned your ministry focus is you have a ministry to pastors, um, kind of to be a pastor to pastors. 
you've kind of hinted at it, but what's, what inspired this idea? Why do you think it's needed? Um, and what is that kind of, what is this, what does that look like? Your, your outlet for ministry that you have now. The inspiration is a person named Walter Herndon. Uh, and, uh, he had a father named Gilbert Herndon. Gilbert was a part of the church when I came back to Christ. And when I felt called and was ready to go off to college, Gilbert asked to meet with me and I went over to his house and we met and, you know, he, as an older gentleman in the church, he told me how much he was proud of me. And he let me know, he said, as you go off to school, you do your best and I'm going to be praying for you. And I'll pray for you every day. So I went off to college and, you know, I'd come back home and visit my parents and uh, Gilbert would call during that visit and say, Hey, can we get together? We'd get together and he'd pray with me. And and that had lasted over the course of my going into uh, while I was in school. I graduated from school, came back to Indiana to, to be a co-pastor with my father. And uh, Gilbert was not a part of that church, but he was still part of my life. And in 1991, he passed. Well, he had a son named Walter. Walter and I grew up together at the same low, same legalistic church I referred to earlier. Walter wasn't a believer either. And uh, I remember when, when Gilbert was passing, Gilbert asked to meet with me privately. The whole family who's there in his house, whole family was gathered. I was the only one that wasn't family. He asked the family to leave and he met with me privately. And he said, Mike, he said, you know, my son, Walt's not a follower of Christ. And he said, I'm going to do everything I can do to lead him to Christ before I leave this earth. But he said, if I don't, I want you to promise me that you'll do everything you can do to help him find Christ. And I told him I would. And you know, we had a time of prayer together. And then I left and the family, he passed. After his passing, I, uh, I started calling Walt, going and visiting. And it was probably six months that transpired and I was able to lead him to the Lord one day. And um, so after, our, after that, he started coming to our church. He lived in Spencer, but it was a good drive, but he still came. He started coming to our church. And probably about three or four months after coming to our church, he called and said, I'm going to come in. So on a Tuesday, so I will come in and see you. And I said, okay. So he came by and this is something I didn't know. Before his father passed, his father had a private session with Walter. And he said, Walt, one of these days, you're going to become a Christ follower. When you do, I want you to make me a promise. And Walt said, what is it, Dad? So I want you to promise that you'll pray for Mike. He said, I will. So now we're uh, pushing forward here. Walt comes that Tuesday to meet with me, and he tells me that story. He says, hey, he says, when, uh, when Dad passed, he told me that if I became a Christ follower, I was to pray for you, but he said, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. And I said, I don't either. I said, but that's kind of cool. And I told him what his dad done. And uh, it blessed him. And so we began this ministry. And, and it really began with, with Walt. Uh, he, 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 might, he just progressed. He, at first, he would, just, he would just pray for me. I, I know he was doing it. But then it progressed in his praying for me. He'd call me once a week, wouldn't know how I was doing. And and it just it continued to just develop. And he began to ask me tough questions. 
in our, we became intimate enough. He began to really care for my soul. It was kind of like a, the David Jonathan relationship. He was my Jonathan. And it's like, I could tell him anything and everything. I could lean on him. And, and he became, as a lay person, he became like my pastor. Hmm. Uh, because I realized you know, in pastoral ministry of 35 years, I never had a, quote, pastor that I could go to as my pastor. But I did have Walt. Uh, quick story about the relationship. So I moved to Millington. And that was tough on him and I, especially tough on him, because now we're 400 miles away. And then uh, went to Millington in 95 and 98. I have another one of those ideas that I'm going to do a Daniel fast leading up to Easter. I'm going to do a 40 day fast, complete fast every other day. And then every other day, just eat vegetables. And I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet the church with anyone that wants to meet with me. I'm going to meet the church on Fridays from 6 PM to 9 PM every week. For during that 40 days, we're going to pray for our Easter service, and we're going to pray for an outpouring of God's spirit. We're going to pray for salvation. So I, I, I share this with my prayer partners. I'm going to do this. I had At that time, I had five or six prayer partners that joined me in that Daniel fast, and they showed up every Friday night. And, I mean, at least those, there was sometimes more, but they are, but what was cool is that first Friday that we're having our six to nine o'clock prayer time about three thirty, walks into my office walter he had just drove 400 miles to spend friday night praying with me he did that every week for six weeks wow just a couple of weeks ago he just randomly stopped by and he said hey i just I just wanted to talk to you face to face. I just wanted to know, how are you doing? Are you doing okay spiritually? He's my pastor. And I wish every pastor had a Walter in their life. Because I could go to him with anything and everything. And I know he wouldn't judge me. And he wouldn't share it. And he would support me. And so I'm thinking, well, if I could now be a Walter for somebody, if I can be a Walter for a handful of pastors, uh, that's better than, I mean, then at least that's something I can do. And, and that's where my passion come from. And that's my inspiration. Walter's my inspiration. Yeah. That's, uh... it's, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this because I spoke with him just a couple of days ago on the phone. He's retired now and I'm going to go, uh, he lives in Terre Haute. I'm going to go to, over and visit him here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to talk to him about getting more on board with me in this idea and him being a prayer partner for more than just me, that he maybe take on four or five other pastors. And he may already be doing that on his own. I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to talk to him about joining on with me. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's a really cool uh, So I have a heart story. for pastors because I know what you yeah. guys go through. And I, and I have, and I say that knowing that I had, I pastored three churches and they were all great churches. I have no horror stories to tell. I had, Millington was a wonderful church to pastor and wonderful people. I still have dear friends there. 
Westlake, I was there 14 years. I had no bad experiences there. It was a good congregation to pastor. I have no horror story. So I've, I've been blessed as a pastor. And even being blessed, I know how hard it was and how much pressure that I was and stress that I felt at times. And I just, I just long for pastors to have somebody that they can go to when they need to talk to somebody. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And uh, you know, Andy, Andy Stanley has a saying, you can't do it for everybody, but you can do it for one, what you'd like to do for everybody, something like that. And so I think, okay, I, you know, I, I can find a pastor, I can start praying for him. Or, and uh, so that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't help but think about what we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Like if only every pastor had that, um, they wouldn't have to feel so alone. Yeah, you know, exactly. His ministry can be very lonely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When you're lonely, that's, that's when you start to, to slip up sometimes. Uh, sure. All of no one's, when you feel like no one's watching or when you feel like you don't have to answer to anybody. Uh, but just having that accountability, that prayer, that constant presence where you can feel like, hey, I'm struggling with this and you don't have to, because, uh, you know, it's not always appropriate to, to you know, air out your grievances to your <laughs> congregation. It's probably never appropriate to do that. Uh, but you, you're struggling with stuff no matter what, nonetheless. And having that relationship, I think it's so important. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, this is kind of a hard a hard uh, 90 degree turn uh, topic wise. Uh, Anthony, did you have any thoughts before I ask the next, uh, move on to the next topic? No, I think, um, no, I think it does. I think the story kind of like how Jesus told stories. I think just within that story, it illustrates a lot of uh, truth and and encouragement. Uh, I guess the only thing I would say is that if you're a pastor and listening, um, there's a little bit of, personal responsibility, uh, at least in my experience of being willing, um, and, and maybe even intentional about that. And, uh, I've tried to be, uh, now I think you need to have discernment. And I also, um, I I do think chemistry is important. Like I, I don't just let, uh, I don't just have anyone as a mentor and I don't tell, or uh, have that vulnerable relationship he was describing that Jonathan David relationship with every friend I have, but I have been intentional about cultivating friendships and not like you said, being alone. And I think there's a degree of that that's on, on me to, to take some ownership for. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, in terms of pastoral leadership, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of bridge building that you might need to do between people who have different opinions and different perspectives on things. Um, so in what ways can have you as a pastor and just advice for pastors in general, uh, what would you say to them uh, when they find themselves struggling with kind of disunity? You kind of have an outsider looking in perspective, but you also have the insider's experience. And I feel like we're in a unique cultural moment where there's quite a bit of potential for that conflict and division. And so like, um, yeah, could you just, I guess, sort of speak to that for a moment? Like what, what encouragement advice tips do you have for pastors navigating uh, our particular cultural moment, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, it's a good, it's a good question. It's obviously a, uh, a difficult one to navigate through. 
because people get very passionate about their convictions. For me personally, um, I think I made a decision years ago that my number one core conviction was going to be love God and love people. And all other convictions had to stem from that core value. So, so and, and, and making that my core value, then when it comes to these divisive things, I had to first consider loving that person mm. uh, more than hating our disagreement. And so I, uh, I think sometimes uh, it, it would help for all of us to have a little bit of humility to recognize we don't have the corner on the market when it comes to biblical truth. Mm-hmm. None of us do. I know we think we do. And I, th- I know our denomination thinks they got the truth. Uh, and I, they do. They got a lot of truth. But they may not have it all. And, and, and even if they do have it all, it, that may not mean that the other groups don't have it all either. So I think there needs to be some grace. Uh, we talk a lot about grace, and grace is the foundation of the Christian faith. We need to have grace for people who have different opinions and different views on things. Uh and allow God to sort that out in them. Uh, I don't have a, the older I get, the less I know. And you, you, you probably have heard people say that before. And I used to hear it. Uh, I, when I was in my twenties and thirties as a young pastor, I was certain about everything. I could give you scripture to back it up. Now those same arguments, I'm not sure of anymore. <laughs> Things I thought, Oh yeah, this is what God says. Uh, I don't say that anymore because I'm not sure that's what God says. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. And in this case, we got to be careful. In uh, And I realize that when we start talking about these social issues, uh, another thing, and let me just say, another thing I think is important for us, at least for me, I think sometimes we want the Bible to answer all society's issues. The Bible wasn't written to answer all society's issues. The Bible is written to us from God to introduce us to himself and to introduce us to his kingdom that we might live his kingdom way. And I think one of the things that we need to do while we want to, while we want to fight injustice, we want to stand for justice, we want to keep our perspective that our role as the body of Christ is to introduce the kingdom of God to new people. It's not to try to convert society to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. society is always going to have its view society is always going to do the things it does it's going to have its way uh you know this and 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 we would love to just change society that it all lined up with god but it's not going to this side of heaven uh so we got to live with that yeah and i think we need to live with that in peace uh, i've seen too much in my ministry too much of the church fighting against society instead of trying to work with society and I think we should try to work with them. Yeah, there's always a middle ground, but it seems like in today it's even worse. There seems to be very little, very little uh, ability for opposing sides to find common ground in the middle. It's all or none, mm-hmm. and that's where and that's where for for you young pastors and even anyone in ministry navigating through that be very. That's a landmine. Because you're going to have people in your congregation on both sides. 
So I think it's important right now for churches and for pastors to be to be aware of that those landmines in his in in his or her congregation, and try to bring peace through love and hope and faith to those things, and not try to slow you know flush them all out from the pulpit. Yeah, yeah, I, I like what you said about the um, you know the Bible isn't an answer to every problem that we face in the world. The answer it, the Bible is a an introduction to a worldview. Yes, that. that Jesus is calling us to adopt and that worldview informs the way that we approach different situations that we come across. And the worldview, like you said, is love God and love others. And, you know, I've, I've, you know, when I was in seminary, of course, I'd been to seminary for 20 minutes and I knew everything. And so I had, you know, I I came across pastors whom I disagreed with theologically. uh, But, but I knew you know, this is a good man. This is a good woman. And they, they are doing their best to love people. And so I don't have to agree with them on everything theologically. Um, I can follow them because I know that they are following Jesus and trying to love people. Uh, Give me that pastor, you know, over a pastor who doesn't love people well, but is really tight theologically, you know, I, I, I think, that's an important, important perspective to, to have. Um, I also like what you said about trying to influence society versus trying to influence individual people. You know, I'm, I'm talking about parables in my class tomorrow. Uh, and I, the, the parable of like the, the leaven kind of came to mind where Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is like yeast that infiltrates mm-hmm. a, a batch of dough. Uh, you know, it's not, the kingdom of God isn't going to just like boom, you know, come out of the clouds and crush us all in one, one false swoop. Uh, Jesus taught the kingdom of God is like yeast that, you know, it starts off tiny, but it expands and, and grows until you can't ignore it anymore. Um, it's so it starts small, but infiltrates exponentially. Uh, and I think that's the way that we influence our culture uh, through individual people. You know, we're the you know, the word of God is like the, the leaven that rises the dough. It doesn't do it immediately. It takes time. Um, yes. Eventually, it it can't be ignored. So, Matt, I love that you brought that up because I was thinking about that. As he said, when you work with society, I could hear some Christians saying, no, we don't need to. We need to resist society. We got to be set apart and all that stuff. But that that parable that the kingdom of God is like yeast came to mind because with that too, and it's been a while, so I could be wrong, but I was researching a little bit of that for a sermon once and thought about how, uh, I think the yeast, when you mix it in with the other ingredients, the flour and the water and stuff, it's not as discernible. Like you can't just pick it out, but it's there. And as it like, as it works with the dough, like I was reading about it, there's like some, some chemistry that happens. Like it changes the molecular structure. It transforms the molecular structure of the dough. Um, and then I also think about Daniel, how he uh, he worked within King Nebuchadnezzar's um, council, this very worldly empire. Uh, but Daniel worked for the good of the kingdom without compromising his devotion to God. So I think and, and without being disrespectful to the king. Yeah, right. Right. Without. Yeah. Defiantly. Uh, there, there's a way to work with society that is in complete harmony with also 
being set apart for the kingdom. Um, and, uh, yeah, we could, we, that could be another, that could be another whole podcast too, but I heard, I heard several years ago, a guy say that we should live like missionaries and act like evangelists. And I, and the, and and as I've gotten older, I realize he's spot on that. That's where, that's where pastors need to be. And Christians need to be let's let's cause a missionary goes into whatever culture it's going into and it adapts to that culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need to live at, at to, to some degree at, we need to live, live at ease and with grace, with culture, and then continue to, to uh, live out the kingdom of God within that culture. And if we live it out, people will see it and they'll tr- be attracted to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The illustration at sermon I used, uh, or the message, the counter illustration or the contrast was it's sometimes we, we act like, uh, we're supposed to be like oil and water, uh, which don't mix. And if you put them together, you can discern the the little oil pockets or whatever from the water, but Jesus, like the illustration of yeast working its way through dough was with the illustration he used. And, um, I think it's, I don't know. And like I said, Daniel, a, a case study in Daniel is, is really interesting as he interacted with a very worldly, very pagan, very secular culture. Um, yeah, it was faithful to Christ. Like that's a great biblical, biblical example. But anyways, yeah, work, we can, there's ways we can partner with society, um, and yet bring about the kingdom. Um, yeah, Matt, that leads us in, in some ways that leads us into the next question. Uh, cause we're talking a little bit about some context of, of scripture. So, so your one of your passions, um, from what Anthony tells me is the kind of historical context of scripture. And so I wanted to ask about how that originated. Um, and how is it, and why is it important that we understand context when we engage scripture? Well, I think it's important. A couple of things. Let me first state that we have our Bibles today here in the West. You know, for English speaking, we have English Bibles that have been translated from multiple languages to our language, and it is understood through our Western mindset. So we look at words from a perspective. For example, the word judgment. And in, in, in our culture, the word judgment is a negative word. It's a, it, it's a word that, that brings condemnation. We're being judged. It's interesting, though, that if you go back and look at the word judge or judgment from a Jewish culture, they didn't view that as a negative word. They didn't view that as some, some judge that was going uh, to bring the the gravel down on us and, and pronounce a judgment of condemnation, they viewed judgment as a good thing as much as it could be a negative thing. Uh, I got into this 20 years ago. I, I decided I was going to read the book of Revelation. I had been through college and, and skimmed through it, but never really studied the book of Revelation. I thought, I'm going to study the book of Revelation. That's so an I easy task. It. Exactly. Yeah, That's the reason be- why I put it off for so long. And I thought it's time that I do that. So I, uh, I, I bought eight or nine books, still have those books today, started reading those. The next five years, I did in my spare time this in-depth study of the book of Revelation. And I found some interesting things. One of the things I found is a lot of the symbolism that 
John is using was common everyday symbols or, or language in the Roman culture. For example, the word beast, beast was a nickname that the Romans gave for the emperors. So when John talks about this beast, in fact, in one passage, he's talking about the beast that had a, had a, uh, had, had received a head wound, a fatal wound. He's talking about Domitian's father, who, when he led the battle against Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD, he was fatally wounded in that battle. They thought he was going to die. And they shipped him back to Rome and miraculously he recovered and he became known as the beast who had the fatal wound. So I, I begin to see in the book of Revelation that there's a lot of Roman culture intertwined in John's writings here. And, and I'm, I'm at the belief now that when John wrote this book, the people of the first century understood clearly what he was talking about. Because all this stuff was common knowledge to them, where it's not to us. And, it, and we think it's a symbolic book, and it is symbolism to us, but it's not near the book that I think a lot of us have made it out to be. That started my course. Then I began to search out Eastern thinking. And I began to buy books with Eastern thought. And I began to realize that there's a different way of viewing Scripture. <laughs> Uh, and as I begin to read more into the Eastern mindset, it just seemed to it just seemed to make more sense to me, because some of our rigid thoughts on scriptures, like well, that, don't really make that much sense. So I, I just begin to learn over the course of my time. I just continue to study Jewish culture, Roman culture. I mean, the New Testament was written in a Roman culture world, and while while we want to. Uh, recognize the Holy Spirit's inspiration, possibly, we have to also take in consideration the Holy Spirit always works within the context of who we are and what we have. So even when the Holy Spirit would inspire us to, today, we're going to use symbols and, and, and words and sentences that are familiar to us. Well, Paul and John and, and, and Peter did the same thing. So I think that we have to it helps us. I shouldn't say we need to. It helps us to have an understanding of that Roman culture and that uh, uh, Hebrew culture as we get into the writings. Let me give you an example. Here's one quick example. I've heard all my life people talk about unequally yoked marriages. And they'll use that to say non -Christian, or Christians should not marry non-Christians. Okay? That's probably not a bad idea. I mean, it's, it has merit, possibly. Uh, I've even had people preach this that against interracial marriages. So you get, they use this, this phrase that Paul uses in the, in, right into the Corinth church to not be unequally yoked. He's not talking about none of that. The Romans had a marriage called non or unequally yoked marriages. And it was basically an agreed marriage where the wife continued to be under the responsibility of her father so basically what it was, it was, a, it was an arranged marriage where the husband had wife privileges without, wife, without any responsibility for his wife. It was an arranged marriage, and mm -hmm. the wife was not equal in that relationship. She was more like, like a servant. So now you have the Church of Corinth, and you have some Jewish people coming in. By the way, in the Jewish culture, wives were equal. Wives were very respected in the Jewish culture. And then so the wife was an equal partner. The two become one. 
And so you have these Jewish Christians in the church of Corinth. You have these Gentile Christians coming into the church of Corinth, some of them having these unequally yoked marriages, these arranged marriages, and these Jewish believers are watching these husbands treat their wives in such a disrespectful way. They got issue with it. Now we're going back to the same issue you guys asked earlier about. How do we deal with these issues within the church, these cultural issues? Well, they had it in the first century too. Yeah. And so Paul, in the whole book of Corinth, that's what he's doing. He's addressing all these social issues that they're facing. And he just says, listen, uh, and, and at this point, he doesn't do this always. But in this case, he basically says, you Gentiles who have now become believers, I'm going to paraphrase him here. You need to treat your wife as an equal and not treat her like a slave or a piece of property. And so that whole context that Paul is talking has nothing to do with interracial marriages, has nothing to do with Christians not marrying non-Christians, has nothing to do with none of that. But yet that's how we understand it in our context today. And that's yeah. just one example. And there are many in the Bible where we have taken it out of context and I blame, I'm, I'm, you'll probably be able to edit this. I blame the Reformation for this because I think we've come out of the Reformation of Luther and we've got Calvinism and, you know, we've got Lutheranism and, and, and we've got all of these different sects that came out and, and they begin to put their take on scripture. And I'm not discrediting the, the value of these people and the good work they did. They did great work, but we are all humans that are flawed. And even in our great works, there can be some works that are not so great. And I think in some cases, we are the recipients of the Reformation. Uh, Mark Patterson, you may have seen it. Mark Patterson does a sermon. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book or wrote a, did a sermon, God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. Well, Mark Patterson preaches on that text. And he does a wonderful job of talking about uh, how... Uh, or, no, the sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what Jonathan Edwards preached. And, and Mark Batterson does a great job of dissecting that and saying, hey, listen, we are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I agree with him. We're not. Yeah. No, I, I, I think. Off there. I'm sorry. No, it's, sorry. No, it's okay. I think, um, and Matt, you, I give you editing uh, liberties here if you, if you yeah. want, but I think. <laughs> uh, I think the Reformation um, had a lot of good, but at the same time, like you said, we're recipients of um, there's so much splintering that has happened in in the church and over uh, a lot of it is over what we call interpretation or hermeneutics and, and all that stuff. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so um, I'm going to kind of you kind of answered the the next question. So um, I just, want to ask, so are there some resources or books uh, um, either for pastors or even just congregants the, the, uh, that are accessible um, that help uh, sort of can help people understand scripture more if they're, if they're wanting to, to learn more, uh, more about it? Uh, there's a couple of uh, books. Some, there's a lady author, and I can't think of her name right now, but she's wrote the book, uh, Dust of the Rabbi, I think the title of her book. Uh, you may have it, Anthony. Ann Spangler and Lois. Yes. Tre- yes. Uh, yes. They've wrote a they've wrote a couple books that they've done a for like an average person. Great, uh, they're great reads or quick reads. Kenneth Bailey is one of my favorites. Love Kenneth Bailey. Uh, uh, he's done. A, he's got some great writings out there as well. And then there's just um, you know I just I'm constantly trying to find 
Eastern writers, you know, the Greek church, the Greek church has got some interesting, uh, uh, the Greek Orthodox church. That's a good resource just to get a different mindset of, of some, some things. I'm not saying that they got the corner and we don't, I'm just saying it, it's good to get diverse ideals. Uh, at least for me, I like that. I like having different opinions so I can sit there. Okay. All right. Where is the truth in all this? Mm-hmm. But those are some books that are easy reads. And I think they're good books to read. And I think that uh, they're uh, Kenneth Bailey does a great job. Yeah. I'm flipping away at uh, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes right now. Um, yeah. It's really good. I had to take a break from it because uh, it's, yes. it's a lot, but uh, yeah. it's, it's super good talking about the teachings of Jesus and the culture of the middle, like ancient Near East and how it relates to the Middle Eastern culture today, how those people okay. might read and interpret those texts differently. Super. I need to, I need to get that one. That one's come up on about three episodes now. Yeah. And then uh, there's um, Paul through Mediterranean eyes too. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm hopping on Amazon probably after this and, and oh, ordering those. I would encourage uh, It's academic, those, but it's, it's accessible too. It's not like super dense. What's the ones, the first ones you mentioned are really accessible by Lois. Uh, I don't know if you say it, Trevberg, it's TV, Trevberg. Turberg, I don't know, uh, uh, T-V-E-R-B-E-R-G, um, but uh, she wrote one, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. Uh, that one is is very uh, accessible, I think. It's not super academic, and it's not a super thick, long read. And then she wrote with um, Ann Spangler, uh, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, and then I think there's something about, they wrote another one. They have like a series, something about um, walking. Uh, walking in the dust of the rabbi or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, but reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus would be a great kind of general over, overview. But, um, but yeah, those are great resources. Well, thanks for um, talking with us, Mike. This was a, a fun conversation. And uh, I, I would love to give you a chance to, provide some information on people who can hear more from you or get in touch with you. Um, do you have like a website or a blog uh, that you can, can refer us to or um, any resources that you would, uh, you would put out there for people to learn more about what you do? Yeah, it's uh, my website's uncommonministries.org. And I have, uh, I write blogs there. I try to, and, and I, my blogs all deal with this whole context issue uh, so they can get on there and, and they can also communicate with me if they have any questions, uh, want to correspond with me. It's uncommonministries.org. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in the, the show notes as well on Spotify awesome. and Apple Podcasts, uncommonministries.org. Well, Mike, thanks again for, uh, for your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the conversation and the stories. Um, if you are one of our listeners, uh, like share rate on apple itunes uh if you've uh just find um our banter fun or helpful or encouraging in any way uh share and and help expand our listener base if if not if as matt said uh we're we're pretty okay podcast and you don't want to share that's fine with no pressure but you can expand help us expand our our listener base don't Um, say mean things yeah don't don't comment negatively we don't want to we don't want criticism. Yeah. But Matt, what was your tagline? Theologizing life. 
not your grandma's podcast. Parentheses <laughs> because your grandma probably doesn't listen to podcasts. There you go. Uh, <laughs> guys, thank you for letting me uh, share this time with you. Yeah, we it was, appreciate it. Great. Well, uh, until next time, thanks for listening to Theologizing Life, podcast that's not half bad. <laughs>